Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and the programmer of the Neon Dream Cinema Club, Brendan Ross. When I was a small kid, like four, I had a copy of Miss Piggy's Aerobeak workout album. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun, and I would do the exercises diligently along with the album, specifically the bit that involved sitting and snacking. Now, I didn't realize the 1982 release was a spoof on Jane Fonda and every other celebrity's workout video of that era. If the Muppets were spoofing the aerobic slash health club trend in the early 80s, then two movies set in health clubs and aerobic studios in 1985 were already tray, tray, passe, as Miss Piggy would say, and probably weren't going to do very well. Now, before we get into our two undeniable hidden gems, let's get into the fad a bit and how it became a punchline so quickly, but is so reflective of the me generation's priorities, which we're now seeing reflected in the OK Boomer sort of uh, zone now. Um, Were you guys kind of aware of this as a fad when you guys were growing up? Like working out? Yeah. I wasn't wasn't a fan of it. I was not a gym (laughs) class person, so I I did not. Yeah, but I was aware. What about you, Brendan? Like it was it was part of the lexicon of like moms and jazzercise classes and things like that. Yeah, I was definitely aware of people exercising. That 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 I was aware of, but <laughs> the, the the culture around people just hanging out at health clubs and just spending their entire days there, I don't think that I was I was privy to. So I looked up jazzercise and I mean like the offshoots of aerobics, but jazzercise specifically, and it was coined by a woman named Judy Shepard Mazette actually in like the late 60s, early 70s when uh, she was dancing a lot and she uh, realized that the presidential fitness test and all these things were built for men. They weren't built for women. Mm. So she decided to start these dance classes that were specifically for women to tone up, get exercise and not feel intimidated by the standards, of course, that were all being set for men. Uh, And what she found when she moved to San Diego with her family is that a bunch of military wives joined her class looking for something to do. And when these women would move around the country, they would be interested in continuing on with it. So she started to franchise it. So by like the early mid 80s, this was the second largest growing franchise in the United States next to Domino's Pizza, which is wild. I remember my mom having a thigh master, like the Suzanne Summers thigh master. And I'm sure we've all had this experience where you, as a kid, try to use it, but you use it wrong and then it flies up and hits you oh, in the jaw yeah. and you bite your tongue and then you have blood coming out of your mouth. That definitely might be an early um, experience for me where why I'm not really into exercise. <laughs> I do exercise. Brendan can attest that I do exercise. I've seen but, it happen. Um, yep. 
it's taken a lot of work to get to that where it's a daily thing because of that one incident with the thigh master. Yeah. Traumatized for life by Suzanne Summers. I'm sure you're not the only one who can say yeah. that. And to There's be clear, no way, I'm no way. Yeah, there are no thigh masters allowed in our in our household. Um, <laughs> thigh master I, I, no I used to have this like I think it was called like an ab master. It was one of those like ancient things that only came, I think it came out in, like the early 90s and it was basically a plastic device that you would just pull into your abs and it didn't mm-hmm. really do. I don't think it was an exercise tool. I think it was just something to give you a stomach ache until like I think I had like bruises around my waist when I was trying to like exercise in uh I don't know I bought it from like a used sports store it was spring yes, right it was like, springs. There was, like yep, a, exactly so he- here's what I my memory of that is um chest hair getting stuck into it so you'd be using it and then the chest hair would wedge into the springs and rip out people's chest hair uh i was a little baby boy when i was uh when i was using this thing so i never had <laughs> little butterball turkey that's exactly no what i was yeah. <laughs> not a risk well you think about the, like this idea of the health club becoming the place to hang out and that it's as we're going to be looking at in one of our movies specifically you know the meat market and it's like you're hanging out with like-minded individuals who are doing something that you like to do, but also most people are already very fit and very attractive. And so it's it just kind of makes sense that that would become kind of where you would meet people in order to sleep with them and like form these relationships. And then you think about like racquetball being a thing and that kind of becoming the new golf yes. and that, that you yes. kind of chat in between that and create these business deals. Like it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, Elaine from Seinfeld met jfk jr at the gym right and then that they go on a date or date gets missed but like that i remember from the 90s being like wow right you could meet jfk jr just on an exercise bike i don't think that's actually true but um that was what gym culture wanted to kind of (laughs) it was tinder of the of the 80s and 90s yeah Oh, for sure. There's yeah. a fantastic CBC clip that I recommend people go look up. Uh, you can Google CBC fitness craze sweeps the nation. And they're showing all of these fitness clubs throughout Canada. But there's this guy who just looks so defeated and so sad. And he's like, I don't like doing this, but I guess I have to. <laughs> and it's just like, that's the only way you're going to get a date. Sorry, bud. And the other thing people point to as well is like the idea of beauty and the standard of beauty had kind of started to shift at this point from the uh, the 70s and like this wafty sort of sort of era into this much more fit, much more trim. You see it in movies like Total Recall about like what the ideal beauty is. Um, and they've attributed a lot to Bo Derek showing up in 10 with like, uh, you know, the totally chiseled body. Clearly she's a woman who works out, takes care of herself, somehow ends up with Dudley Moore. Like it's a really, it's a really interesting idea that like beauty standards shift based on one image. Yeah, it's a total revolution. I mean, gone is Mio Farrow. And even just looking at Jamie Lee Curtis, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, she's still a waif, but um, she's she's a hard body. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hard body. Well, yeah. When did that become part of like the when did that become popular? Like sculpting you, the idea of sculpting your body and not just being fit, not just being in shape, but actually like looking like a chiseled stone creature. That's all Jane Fonda stuff, right? Yeah. Like Jane Fonda is the one who really changed the game as smart as she was. Ma- being married to Ted Turner at the time, she had access to this huge network distribution. So that's the person who was able to say, this is the standard. You want to look like me, you do this. Mm-hmm. And no one had really done that up until that point. And that's why it was so revolutionary. And that's why she kind of became a punchline with that. And you see what she did and you're like, no, that's actually absolutely brilliant. And I'm sure she made, she probably made more money doing that than she did throughout the entirety of her film career. I would be surprised. 
Was that a pun intended, Becky? Absolutely. (laughs) If it's me, you know how that goes. (laughs) All right, let's get into our first movie. Now, the first in the two movies we're going to be talking about today is the more exploitation-y, although both are equally as memeable. Now, I need to do a moment-by-moment comparison, but I think... Heavenly Bodies has more montages than Flying, which we discussed a few seasons ago, I think. Agreed. Just possibly. But really, when it's Canada's perkiest Dale, Cynthia, bobbing around to bonkers musical ripoffs of hits of years gone by, who even notices if there's any sort of plot or if it's just a string of workout numbers? Now, Alicia, did you see this on a loop as a kid on TV like I did? Because I feel like that's how most people remember this. Not at all. This is a late discovery for me. Brendan programmed this for um, Neon Streams maybe about a year ago, a little more than a year ago during the height of the pandemic. And so I watched it that way. Um, I will say this has been on Hollywood Suite from the very beginning of Hollywood Suite. This is a Hollywood Suite vault classic, I would like to call it. Um, I'd always heard of it and knew who Cynthia Dale was from Street Legal. I did not realize her prolific career or not so prolific, but incredible career prior to Street Legal. Um, I love this film. This film I love. Like, I didn't see it on a loop as a kid, but watching it the first time, I wanted to watch it on a loop as an adult. <laughs> it's easily loopable. Like, it's something like you feel like you could throw on, on a, at a party and just have it play in the background and people just sort of tune in being like, well, that's happening right now. How interesting, you know? Yeah, there's no, like, discerning, yeah, like, beginning and end. Like, you could easily just, it could end, start again, and you wouldn't even, like, notice that anything had happened. It's like a snake eating its tail. Exactly. <laughs> or yeah. perhaps like some sort of pornographic film that you could turn on and turn <laughs> on as you see Yeah, it. perhaps this was produced by Playboy. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows, which in, in fact was. And that's the other thing I want to bring up is like I – cannot remember the last movie I saw that had that many production companies listed at the beginning. It's like an RCA film, a Playboy film. A this. Like, it's wild how much production, how many people put money into this. Yeah. But it doesn't have super high production values. So you're like, where people, do, is this like the tier level? Like when you go to the opera and they show you who the sponsors are and it's like, here's the gold <laughs> tier, who's the platinum? You know, this person contributed 50 bucks exactly, when we said yeah. that we'd put their name in it. I think my understanding is there must have been... Um some sponsorship from a boom microphone company because the amount of times the boom microphone is in frame, which I kid you not, Brendan, would you say it was 20 times? Oh, at easily, least, right? yeah. We, we were making jokes that like, we sh- you should play a drinking game where you would like take a shot every time there's a boom mic. Uh, but then we realized pretty quickly that like you would get alcohol poisoning in the first like, 15 minutes. <laughs> Wasted. Um, and right. I do, I actually think it's the version we were watching, the framing Definitely. of the actual, I'm not going to call it a restoration. We were not, we were watching a bit of a, <laughs> Maybe this copy fell off the back of a truck. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was obviously in the restoration. They didn't put the gate in. So you're not meant to see the microphone or the boom mic. Um, But I do love at one point you see a boom mic operator in the actual film world. And it's like it blows my mind because you've just been watching this mistaken boom flying around. (laughs) (laughs) It's a double boom. All right. Before we uh, go any further, let's give people a brief quote unquote plot summary. Alicia, do you want to do the honors on this one? Sure. So we have Samantha, played by adorable Cynthia Dale, 
Um, she's a very young mother. Uh, I think she had her child at 17. I love that part of her like backstory, which isn't revealed until kind of later. Um, and she quits her job in order to open her own workout studio called Heavenly Bodies. Um, it's leased with her two very close friends and they teach classes and their dream is to save up enough money in order to buy the gym. And this is in Toronto. So, I mean, I realize it's 1984, but I want everyone to know that gym would cost like a billion dollars today (laughs) um and i think it's in they filmed in liberty village kind of where they filmed the fly where seth like seth brendel fly probably could have gone to work out at this place down the street from where he was living is my understanding of the geography of this film i want that fan fiction if this is like an (laughs) mcu level uh (laughs) yeah that could be god i could make money off that but um unfortunately um there's some competition so in the midst of this samantha has auditioned for to be like the workout girl on um, Toronto television and she's she steals the job from this you know vixen who is uh, dating the head of that other kind of workout gym the more professional gym the LA fitness if you will in this world and um, there's a bit of a love triangle and what ends up happening is the vixen gets really angry that her boyfriend is kind of like has the hots for Samantha. So she uh, finds a way to get a guy to buy the building and then the lease is canceled. So, I mean, what do you do in that situation? I think we've all been there in Toronto. It's, it's you know, essentially being renovicted. So, you know, Samantha doesn't take that. No renoviction for Samantha. She decides to challenge on, on television um, this other gym that's going to tear down her gym to an aerobics off, a Which, televised aerobics off that has an announcer. Yeah, and was I was unaware. Confused what that would actually be. I was like, what is an aerobics off? I don't know. But all they do is they run on the spot for hours and hours and hours and hours until they all pass out from cramps or dehydration. No water. I saw at no yeah, point no, not any a single water, water bottle imbibed in this scenario um sweat is flying it's very fun this is all very very fun it's a happy film there it's got a little bit of a bite with some sexual harassment and sexual assault i i very light don't want to detract from that but um yeah wow what a the fact that there are announcers for aerobics like fitness showdowns you never see where the announcers are they're not in a booth but they also know the backstory of these two women competing which i love where they're just like no love lost there between samantha <laughs> and it's like what 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 is your role like how do you know all this how do you know about this because it's the automatically automatic assumption that two incredibly tr- attractive ambitious women there is no possible way whatsoever they could support or uplift each other and therefore they must be direct competition that's how this works I think what I found interesting as I was kind of going into this is I'm like, I didn't realize that the the TV show was based on an actual TV show in Toronto called The 20 Minute Workout. This is apparently one of the first televised um, workout things that they had where like every lunch hour they would kind of rotate. There was three different women. And then, of course, they would kind of rotate out these women um, who would do these workouts in the middle of the day for 20 minutes. And you were supposed to do them along with them, like meant, intended for people who were staying home during the day, more than likely how housewives but of course this got like this whole reputation if you go on youtube like someone has artfully edited all these videos into the way they believe these women should be watched in a certain manners but one of the um main directors of this was ron harris who then went on to direct a bunch of softcore porn Mm. as well as a bunch of actual nude aerobics videos so it's like okay you can see what sort of gaze is captured in these 20 minute workouts that's definitely the logical progression. <laughs> that makes sense. 
Yeah, and you kind of see some of that in this film too, even though it is kind of sweet and innocent, but it does have, it, it, it seems like at any moment it could veer into like softcore porn territory. But that's the eroticization of aerobics in general, which I think we're also going to see the accusation made in Perfect is like that's the issue a lot of people had with that movie is mm-hmm. like it's how do you record incredibly attractive human beings doing what could be seen as provocative moves like all that thrusting, the hip movements, etc. Lunging. And not lunging, exactly. Bouncing for women um, that is not considered eroticized right like because it is it's kind of it's very active that's sort of what it is how do you I mean here they're throwing on like a soft filter in the angles choosing to like you know zoom in on someone's ass but how do you not eroticize that do you know what I mean why would you not want to is the question I guess (laughs) that is true (laughs) if you especially if you were selling a movie like this to the masses that you're going to be playing you know on uh, let's say showcase for however long that's kind of the point yeah I feel like if you're not eroticizing you're kind of you're in the wrong biz (laughs) (laughs) I agree with that statement I agree with that statement (laughs) It was interesting to me also how many people saw this as a flash dance ripoff, which it definitely has shades of that. And at one point, she is literally standing in front of a a flash dance poster, which I was like, I'm sorry, what just happened there? That's a little surreality. She's in the middle of, so she's outside like a movie theater in the very beginning of the film. And yes, there's a flash dance poster, but there's also a Star 80 poster, which trying to wrap my head around that, given there is a really obsessive relationship in this that um, she is like assaulted and thrown through a coffee table. And knowing that Star 80 is also sort of what they're playing with um kind of blew my mind like i mean given it's filmed in probably 83 so those are movies that were just fresh in the theaters as well as never cry wolf which i think you also see yeah uh, yes. a poster of but um certainly star 80 and flash dance are more prominent and i believe my my thoughts on flash dance are well known on this podcast um <laughs> refer to go watch ep- yeah. flash beagle yes flash beagle. watch flash dance <laughs> uh refer to season one if listeners need to but this is a better film than flash dance this is a better character agree. This is a better, fully rounded female character who is also a mother, who is just, I, I love her character so much. I love her friendships. No, there's no friendships in Flashdance, female friendships. I love that this is about camaraderie and, um, you know, supporting each other, even though there is this vixen. But she's she's got a community that she's trying to build up and support and that's not what flash dance is about. Yeah, and balancing her professional life with her with being a mother. I mean, I, I yeah. don't think a lot of films really show that that, you know, she's like a highly motivated professional, but she's also, you know, balancing that with her motherly duties and like she still has to like, you know, spend time with her spend time with her kid and like, you know, have an actual relationship and like they actually spend the time to show that relationship and what kind of uh uh what they have together. Yeah, like, I gotta yeah. say, I can. Yeah, her, go ahead, her, go ahead, like, I really love that her early date with the kind of the the love interest, not the guy who's going to end up being a jerk. But um, the date is like he comes over, cooks them dinner, and plays snakes and ladders with her son, and like mm-hmm. they have a nice evening. Um, and there's a build up to their sexual relationship because she has to protect her son, and that's that's all realistic, and that's maybe not sexy on a page on a screenplay. But I think women would relate to that, where if you have a four-year-old, you're going to be very careful with who you let into your home, and that guy better be nice to your kid. And there's that buildup so that when we do get this insanely softcore, Vaseline-smeared sex scene, I was into it because I was like, this guy seems like he's going to be a good influence on little, was it Joel? (laughs) Little Joel. And, uh, you know, I think a, a, a flash dance would never do that. Most films would never do that. This is really a unique scenario where they're showing something realistic. 
I think there's also something, too, in the fact that she is um, in the way she parents. I, I love this scene. I, when, when you look at reviews and people talking about this, a lot of people are like, oh, my God, she explains to her child what an orgy is, which, mm-hmm. of course, they never get away from the sex in this movie. Okay. It's even in the scenes with the child. But I'm like, no, that totally happens before bedtime. You're reading a story that you haven't uh, you haven't vetted yet. And you're like, OK, here's we're going to have a whole discussion about what exactly the context of an orgy is. That specific context, I think they're more talking. I mean, the sex is probably involved, but it's more like um, bacchanalian, right? Than it is involving, like as we would think of the modern eyes wide shut orgy. They're would reading be, I'm sure. Tom Sawyer, right? I, yeah, I'm, I'm, exactly. Is there an orgy in Tom's? I don't want. No, he's just referencing what an orgy. But again, I think it's meant in Why like a bacchanalian. Is... Lots of food. Okay. Have you not read Tom Sawyer? A man starves to death in a cave in the end of it, and they find him surrounded by half-eaten bats. That's what I, happens I, in Tom Sawyer. I guess I haven't. Um, I haven't read it either. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. It was never part of my curriculum. <laughs> I read it because I thought I thought it was fun. What kind of nerd am I? <laughs> oh man! If I knew there was orgies in it, I would have read it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> You'd like Becky. I think Becky is is a is a character for the ages. I'd like to see more of her. It, let's get a bit into this um, idea of a complicated character because, like, it doesn't have to be this way. And this is co-written by two men, and it's directed by one of the men who wrote it, Lawrence Dane, who is best known as like a Canadian character actor. Mm. Um, Brendan, you know a bunch about Lawrence Dane because he appears in a bunch of the movies you program. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's in a he's a player in. A- He's in. I think he's in Scanners. Uh, he's in a couple of uh, Canadian slasher movies. I think Happy Birthday to Me. He's in Rituals. He's got pretty. Oh, I love Rituals. He's a pretty like heavy hitter, and he's worked in like through the two thousands. He was even in Bride of, Bride of Chucky, which I don't actually remember who he played, but I think he was like pretty top build in that. Uh, he's still alive. He's eighty four years old. Um, honestly, somebody needs to get a hold of him because we need to restore this movie before we lose him. And <laughs> you I want, want to a see Dane a commentary? Lawrence Dane approved restoration of this film. <laughs> Do you think this is always my curiosity? Because like having done a Canadian film podcast for three years, you would reach out to people who like were not even remotely interested in talking about some of their money work. Right. Like this was not the kind of thing. Do you think he loved this movie? I wonder if speculate even, about his feelings. I wonder if he even knows that people are still watching this. I feel that like a lot of time when I do reach out to kind of these like old timers that made these kind of genre films uh, earlier in, in their careers, they're shocked that anybody even not not just watch them, but that anybody even has access to them. So I feel mm-hmm. like this could be one of that, that you could ask him about that. And he would be like, what do you mean? Like, where would you even find this film? Uh, let alone like, the fact that it has like some semblance of a cult following, I feel would shock and surprise him. This is a film, when you look at it, you're like, okay, and people kind of accused of the the plot being all over the place, which the plot is kind of all over the place. Like it's, it's clear there was direction coming from various producers about what they thought would sell. But there's love behind this. Like they hired Brian Foley, who is an enormous um, dance choreographer, not just like a choreographer, but like he developed a whole system of teaching dance that is used Canada wide with his mm-hmm. wife. Like this guy's legit. And then they hired Cynthia Dale, who not only is fantastic, but she's also like a professional level dancer Absolutely. so unlike flash dance you're seeing her do everything so you have the capacity and except no, no the digital flips. arm business. except for the back flips. except for the that's that was right. clearly a guy in a wig you can see it pretty but i don't want to detract like cynthia dale as a ballerina and as a, a modern dancer is fantastic and that sells this film in a big way now speaking of selling the film how much money do you think they expected to make on the back end of this soundtrack i mean it was out there you, you know it's funny i just like I, um i just 
bought the soundtrack last night while watching it <laughs> off of eBay, yes, a did. Japanese pressing of it. Uh, I hope mm-hmm. it, <laughs> I hope it comes um, because it's, it's hard to find online. It hasn't really been uh, not really available on like Spotify or anything like that, but there definitely were, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think there was a Japanese and a German pressing of it. Like it was all international sales and they seemed to push it pretty hard. You probably know more about it than I do. Stereotypically, it was big in Japan because, of course, it was. It makes sense. Um, like this, it, this film opens and um, closes and possibly there's a part in the middle, too, with the Spark song that is really, really catchy. Like they've put work into the soundtrack and then had to probably justify 30% of their budget that they spent on the music by playing the songs over and over again throughout the film, whereas typically you'd only hear a song once on a soundtrack as a leitmotif. But it, it actually works really well. It makes it kind of circular. And um, by the end of it, I felt like maybe I could dance a little, like not jazzercise, but I felt my hips kind of moving and getting yeah. into it. And because I recognized the songs from an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, There's two Bonnie Pointer of the Pointer Sisters tracks on here, right? Yeah. So like they are going to the go-to. I mean, we're at, what year is um, uh, Beverly Hills Cop? That's like 84, 85. 84, isn't it? 84. 84. I'm sure it is. Yeah, yeah. So by that point, the Pointer Sisters were one of the biggest bands in the universe. Um, And then the Sparks track you talk about, Breaking Out of Prison, as soon as you listen to those lyrics, is that or is that not a desperate attempt to capitalize on like a new wave uh, nine to five Dolly Parton song? Oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) It'd be difficult to jazzercise to nine to five. I mean, it's got that great opening beat, but the rest of it is like, how do you move? It's got that different groove. Yeah. One thing I love about the soundtrack is that you you could feel that they spent like I, I would I would assume most of the budget from this film went to the soundtrack and because yeah. they kind of put so much money into it it was like we've got to get our money's worth here so every song is played at least like four or five yeah. times yeah and it's great because it makes it this kind of like cinematic earworm so it keeps on coming back and when it does like you know it, it's like you hear the first time you're like oh this song's catchy but then when it comes back like the third or fourth time you're like yes you're really into it uh, you know what else I was very into the Gorillagrams. Why don't we have a Gorillagram anymore or singing telegrams? Why isn't that a thing? I mean, in the age of COVID, you don't want strangers coming to your home. But like, but even like, why did we lose the Gorillagram? Yeah, nobody's ever courted me with a Gorillagram. And uh, let me tell you, I would be putty in whoever's hands sent a Gorillagram <laughs> to my house. That's for he sure. He says on a podcast with his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I'm like, watch your back, Alicia. His live-in girlfriend. <laughs> the reason a gorilla gram does not make sense today, to my cynical eyes, is anyone can dress in a gorilla suit and break into your fucking home. <laughs> and like, <laughs> if I'm like, oh, like, it's a singing gorilla. Please, come in. Come in. Like... No, that's just a as they're, as they're holding clear, your VCR. I would not invite them into our home. <laughs> so you want that in the, the hallway, our tiny vestibule with our neighbors? <laughs> uh, well, I was thinking like the fr- the front porch. That's where I would uh, like we yeah, open okay. the door and they would do their thing from outside. And then we say thank you the... very much and close the door afterwards. I think that's or the, you the shoot them like in Clue, which is the same year as this, with the singing telegram girl from the Go Go's, right? Like it's the same thing. Obviously, this was a motif in 1985. Maybe it was on its way out, and people were kind of like lamenting it. I don't know. You I are, think it's weird. You are describing a dream to me right now. I, we definitely <laughs> need to research it because this could have been a Toronto phenomenon. Like there could have been a company called Gorillagram, and this is just a part of Toronto nomenclature that uh, us kids born in the 80s 
are not familiar with. It's possible. Gorilla Gram also sounds to me like a um, like a sitcom from the '80s about someone's gorilla grandmother. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, gorilla grand. <laughs> it could also grandmama. be like um, a just for laughs gags, like sideshow oh, where people get gorillaed. <laughs> oh, get gorilla. getting gorilla. Yeah, it'd be like an offshoot to, to gags. Um, here's gorilla-ed. a question. Do you, do you think that if I purchase like, not like too realistic, but like a pretty good, you know, uh, John Landis-esque uh, gorilla costume, mm. I could start up a business as a gorillagram? Because I feel like I'd really corner the market. Uh, like, who I, I, would be yeah. my, my competition? And I feel like, yes, I continue. I cut you off. I apologize. Keep going. That's okay. Um, I, it was barely a thought. Um, but I, I feel like if I did have a gorilla costume, I could corner the market. I wouldn't have any competition. But the question is, how much demand in the greater Toronto area would there mm-hmm. be for gorilla grams? Here's my thought on this. Um, and I'm someone who has done extensive research into both rentals and possibly purchasing a gorilla suit in order to perfect <laughs> the Marlena Dietrich Blonde <laughs> Venus burlesque show, where a burlesque performer would be in the gorilla suit, peeling it off hand by hand. I think we've all known that. We all know that scene. It's, you know, beautifully parodied or, you know, an homage is in uh, Batman and Robin. They cost so much money. You will be paying that thing off like a Land Rover. Like, I don't know how much money you can get from the Gorilla Grams to justify the thousands of dollars that these Gorilla suits cost. Plus, if you rent one, the dry cleaning of a Gorilla suit... Let's not go there. That's that's oh, neither would, here nor there. I would sweat up a storm in that thing for sure. You are also <laughs> six foot three, Brendan. Thank you. Um... <laughs> Have you ever heard of the phrase "you got to spend money to make money"? Though I'm not sure. You've said that to that. me in our home several times, and every time <laughs> I have an answer for you that that does not apply to the situation. And then she puts the credit cards in blocks of ice. <laughs> That's the end of that. All right, I'm going to take us into our next movie. Oh, we're moving on uh, from Gorillagrams. All right, I guess we're moving so. on from Gorillagrams. <laughs> That's what's happening. All right. So when we come back after the break, we're going to be looking at a movie that many, many people do not think is perfect. And those people are wrong. It's perfect. And that's coming up after the break. Speaking of trends that came and went with a whoosh, in 1978, John Travolta was the hottest thing in town. And that came crashing down in 1979 with Moment by Moment. And then he was back up with Urban Cowboy and Blowout. And then 1983's Staying Alive sealed his fate for the majority of the 80s and much of the 90s. Even a repairing with Olivia Newton-John in 1983 couldn't save him. Too bad, because the vitriol aimed at Travolta unfortunately blinded critics to a movie that, much like Urban Cowboy, which we discussed last season, is way more complex than the circulated and much-ridiculed YouTube clip that would have you believe. You know the one with Travolta and Jamie Lee Curtis gyrating ludicrously in an aerobic studio getting increasingly sweatier? Well, that's only half the story. Alicia, I watched this on your recommendation, and I yelled about how much I loved it for the next week. So thank you very much, as always. And then when time came around, it was like, it's 85. We have to do perfect. We'll just save it for the podcast. It'll be great. In fairness, that credit is partially owed to Brendan because um, despite the fact that I think if you listen to the podcast from last um, season about Urban Cowboy, I grew up with Urban Cowboy from like age six, which is exquisitely disturbing. Um, but really James Bridges, <laughs> like his estimation in my life, which I think he's a fantastic director, is owed to Brendan, who really um, has championed him through Neon Dreams and programmed Mike's Murder, which I freaking love. And uh, uh, I'm really excited to 
just tackle all the James Bridges. So, I mean, I want to give thanks to Brendan for, even though I had Urban Cowboy in my DNA, I didn't know that as a James Bridges film necessarily. And this is a movie that unfortunately was much, much maligned by critics, not just in 1985, but now people Mm -hmm. still refer to it as a mess. Nathan Rabin hates this movie. Um, And it's interesting to me that people still don't see this for, because I think it's a gem. I really loved this. Ebert liked it. Ebert liked it. And I will say that it does have champions. And I think, Brendan, you can speak more to this, but we're seeing a James Bridges renaissance in rep house programming, especially at the New Beverly. Tarantino is a huge fan of James Bridges and loves this film. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's coming. Like I think this podcast episode will be ahead of the game. And I want to say this is on Hollywood Suite, has been on Hollywood Suite for years, is currently on Hollywood Suite, most likely will be on Hollywood Suite when this episode airs. Um, <laughs> this is a film that we like at Hollywood Suite, and not just because we can put the gif of um, John Travolta humping the air, which works for marketing, uh, it's because it's actually quite an iconic 80s film. It's amazing how many people are talking about it within the media. Uh, We'll be talking about Desperately Seeking Susan coming up and Madonna actually comes for Jamie Lee Curtis when uh, she's doing an interview in Interview Magazine with Harry Dean Stanton of all people and Harry Dean Stanton is talking about what an attractive woman Madonna is, which she is and she's like, well, I'm no Jamie Lee Curtis and I'm like, shots fired, Madonna, shots fired. All right, before we get too far into it, Brendan, what is this movie about? Oh, thank you so much, Becky. Um, so John Travolta is an obituary writer, which I actually forgot until I watched it again today that he starts off as an obituary writer. Uh, <laughs> he kind of climbs the literary ranks and becomes a Rolling Stone correspondent. Um, so he kind of has this ambitious pitch about writing a story on the on the health club craze in Beverly Hills. So he goes to this uh, very popular health club, uh, approaches Jamie Lee Curtis, who is clearly the star employee. She's an aerobics instructor and uh, tries to make the story kind of centered around her. Uh, unfortunately, she has a pretty intense distrust of reporters. So he has to kind of convince her to do this story a romance naturally blossoms, and uh, John Travolta learns a lot about journalistic integrity. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he does. This he isn't really an does. And, and I mean, that's what I wasn't expecting, right? When people see the GIF and the meme, they're like, oh, this is a sexy movie, but sexy whatever. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, no, 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 this is Wyndham Earl, <laughs> who is a terrible man yeah. getting set up. And no yeah. one would expect that that film, having seen that meme, ends with John Travolta going to jail for contempt of court. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, the best thing about this film, the thing that I love the most about it, it is, it is a completely ludicrous concept that, I mean, if people look back at it and say that it's dated now, like, no, 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 like this concept was dated when it came out, I think. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. and it is, it is like a completely ludicrous concept, but the thing is it's played totally straight. There's no winking at the audience. There's no, like, I know this is ridiculous. Go with us. Like it really does play it as if it's, uh, all the president's men. Hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of what they're trying to do, and maybe that's the, maybe that's the downfall people don't like because you pair that with these like frankly very eroticized but unbelievably shot a lengthy aerobic scenes, and then you add into that like multiple scenes of I mean there's our very favorite a male strip scene in this where they Chip go to Chippendales. Chip love it. Which throwback to uh, throwback to the episode on Mr. Mom. 
where we talked this about is like the third or, this is like the third or fourth movie though from the, on this podcast mm-hmm. alone where we have watched it where they've had male strip scenes which i kind of love and this is a very artfully done one and it's lengthy too like it just keeps going it's not like you're catching the end of his routine it is the whole routine in this yeah club. there's some like 360 camera action it goes around the circle and like um you know I mean, just so much thrusting. This is a great strip club scene. Yeah. Every, like, whether it's like a strip scene, an aerobic scene, like, one thing that's very notable is that they all occur over the entire length of a song. Like, it's not edited into oblivion. Like, it actually does play out. Like, there's aerobic scenes that go on for, like, four and a half minutes. It's, a great it's point. pretty wild. It's a great point. Well, let's get a bit into um, James Bridges then. Do you want to kind of lead us through where he was at in his career, Brendan? Sure. So James Bridges is an openly gay man from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. So he kind of came to Hollywood. And uh, yeah, so, you know, not the most natural kind of transition into a Hollywood career. Uh, But when he did came, I mean, he kind of like fought tooth and nail and was very busy, like through the 50s working on, uh, I think he did like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, things like that before getting into feature films. And he's by his own admission like he was treated pretty unfairly by Hollywood just because he was such an outsider and I think that kind of outsider perspective really sort of guided his career uh and I mean like you can definitely see it you can see it in Urban Cowboy and this like you know like I'm not really supposed to be here um and it same thing goes with uh, Mike's Murder which he did just one year before this came out I mean it's a movie about LA from the perspective of somebody who does not belong in LA and that's why it does not look like there's nothing glitzy about it. It's dark and it's disturbing and it's kind of mm-hmm. scary. Um, and coming off of Mike's murder, which is a film that was kind of that was kind of t- taken away from him, kind of like his uh, his vision was sort of obliterated. Uh, and then it was really taken to task by the press, uh, a lot of it because he integrated his own experiences as a gay man into this film. And the press just didn't like that. Critics uh, absolutely just tore it apart. Um, and I think as a result, he had this disdain yeah, for, for critics and for reporters that really affected the narrative of this, considering that he's supposed to be making a movie about reporters, and he came into this with this newfound kind of disdain for them. So one of the common critiques of Perfect is that it really drifts away from the investigative nature to just focus too much on the characters and on like, you know, what goes on in the club. So it became very meandering. And I think that was intentional, but I also think that's what makes this film kind of special. I agree. I love all the stuff in the health club. It also features uh, two of my favorite female character actors. <laughs> I love Lorraine Newman and I love Mary Lou Henner. And both of them get a lot to do. Together, like yeah. All of, together. And in uh, all James Bridges movies, women get a lot to do. And I always yep. appreciate that. Um, I mean, it's we're not seeing... <laughs> so there was a big point of contention here. So Deborah Winger and James Bridges had kind of come up together. She, of course, is an urban cowboy. She's in Mike, Mike's Murder. And they were going to come back to her for perfect, but she was busy with some other things. And so this became a huge point of contention. There's a fantastic story that Aaron Latham talks about yep. where um, the same day where Jamie Lee Curtis was going to audition for the part, they're in this bungalow. She's with Travolta. And then Deborah Winger shows up at the back door with the governor of Nebraska, yeah, who she was dating boyfriend. at the time, Bob <laughs> Carey. So she comes in, sits down beside John, while Jamie Lee Curtis and him are doing the scenes and he's got a woman on either side of him trying to like pull his attention in this audition. Deborah Winger's trying to steal this audition from Jamie Lee Curtis. So John Travolta says, fuck this, goes and sits next to Bob Carey and starts macking on him. He gives him a kiss. He puts his arm around him. And I'm just like, that is 
absolutely incredible. Like, good on John Travolta for being like, I see exactly what's happening here. Jamie Lee Curtis just wanted to show up and act. She didn't yeah. know she was getting in the middle of all of this. Oh, God, to be a fly on the wall during that audition. Uh, the fly I know on the, James... the RV wall. <laughs> sure, right, right, yeah. I know James Bridges said after that whole dramatic experience happened, he was like, yeah, I don't think I want to do auditions like this anymore. It made him reconsider how he structured his auditions moving forward. Well, he had, of course, had an affair with Deborah Winger uh, during Urban Cowboy. And uh, it's such a great Deborah Winger quote where she talks about uh, calling up. I think she called either Aaron Latham or James uh, James Bridges saying like the first that they had made love on the hood of his of his Rolls Royce. And then secondly, that he had asked her to marry him after they'd made love again. He said, well, what did you say? And her response was, the movie is over, John. So I'm just <laughs> like, oh, boy. Well, John, but, John was dating Mary Lou Henner during this film. Yes, so he's yeah, just, off and this on. is just what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it is. And so there's a, because um, Rolling Stone, of course, we will talk about this in a minute, is very integrally tied to this film. And there was like a whole Hollywood lookbook about this film in the issue of Rolling Stone, including like John Travolta's quote unquote acting journals, where he talks about having slept with Deborah Winger. And so his assumption is that potentially he should sleep with Jamie Lee Curtis to see if they can get that same kind of chemistry going on. And I'm like... What an Logical. interesting thing, number one, to think, or number two, to put in public. Like, just the assumption that, yes, you need to sleep with your co-star okay, to have chemistry. Okay, just pause on that, though. Why do you think those stories were put in the media, potentially? Ah, uh, yes, of course. Thank this you, This is a man Alicia. who was engaged to Lily Tomlin, I believe, at a certain point, while filming a film that was directed by her lover, I'm just, I, let's not go there. This is not for this podcast, but I'm just saying, perhaps <laughs> this was a bit of a ruse. I see. Well, he, like I said, he was also kind of on his way out at this point. And that's one of the reasons why, like, you both read the reviews of this. Like, they are going way too hard on, on John Travolta. Yeah, it's bad. It is, it is tough to find a positive review. And it's, speaking of uh, speaking of the uh, All the President's Men, I found one great review from the New York Times that said, if Alan Pacula's fine film adaptation of All the President's Men can be, can be said to be the mark of a beginning of a new kind of journalism film, James Bridges Perfect, suggested by a piece in Rolling Stone magazine by Aaron Latham, may mark the absolute idiotic end. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Yeah. That's vicious. And what's funny, yeah, well, what's funny is when I came to this film, like, I, I actually watched it start to finish for the first time very recently. Um, I mean, we, me and Alicia both did together. And before that, I admit, I only kind of knew this film from the memes and from like the video clips of you know, John Travolta dancing with his, or, you know, gyrating with his little dink flapping around, which admittedly is very, very funny. Uh, but I, I, I myself it's didn't the realize. the intensity. It's yeah. so intense. The, the eye, contact. eye contact. No, it's the yeah. eye contact. That's what yeah. gets me every time. And just that little power stance that he does when he's just like going back and forth and you see, and you see that he has, like, I don't want to make it too much about this. That's a lie I do. But you can see that he has a bit of a semi. Can we say semi on this podcast? 100%. You can see that he's like a a little bitty wreck. Not fully, but he's definitely not flaccid. And I had to imagine that must have been a choice, right? Um, Oh, yeah. Because he's really leaning into that. And you really like, it seemed like he really wanted to make the audience know that what he was, what he was working with. Uh, And it is, it's so funny. It's so funny. But there's, when that scene ends, it immediately turns into like a very thought-provoking drama with some really like earned relationships so it's such a 
such an interesting juxtaposition of uh, themes. Everybody kind of focuses on the journalism, but my thing is I'm like, they're really talking about consensual, non-conventional relationships in a way that I think is really progressive and really interesting. Agreed. And they don't ever really make fun of it. It's just like, yeah, this guy has two partners. They're polyamorous. This is what they do. And, and there's no judgment on it. It's just, and, and so we as the outsider see kind of John Travolta looking at this and sort of learning about this world. And part of me wishes it was more that and less about, you know, the journalistic integrity bit on the side of the guy who's being screwed over by the government. I wish it was more about the journalistic integrity when you're talking about people's sex lives and making the judgments of other people. I wish it focused more on that world because I think that's the most interesting part of this movie. Yeah, yeah, I fair. agree. And I think that, yeah, you're absolutely right about how, like, they're not making fun of each other. Like, they do, you know, take this take this as seriously as you can. I mean, and also, like, there's not, I was, I was about to say there's not much, like, slut-shaming, but there is in relation to Lorraine Newman, but that's used as a very important plot point in the film. So there's actually, like, purpose for all of that. For any kind of, like, uh, you know, meanness, I think there's, like, a very good purpose yeah. for it. And I'm not coming after Lorraine Newman's career at all. The woman has had an unbelievable career. She's done very well for herself, but I think this is exactly how you cast her. Like, she's fun and goofy and silly, but you still get to see her have these moments of pure emotional resonance. Um, but then she's off and she's planning an orgy, right? <laughs> like right. You're kidding. No, I'm gonna have a chin implant and some cheekbones and a different nose. Why? You look terrific. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. A doctor friend of mine's gonna do it for me. And he knows a guy who knows a makeup artist on the Dukes of Hazard. He's gonna redesign my face. Really, she, the way she bounces from emotional to extreme to emotional extreme is really impressive in this. She's great in this movie. She's yeah. insecure. She's a relatable character that, you know, there's all these hard bodies and gorgeous people. And I'm not saying Lorraine Newman isn't beautiful, but she doesn't fit into that world. And I think it's incredibly relatable the way that she sees herself as lesser than. And at one point she talks about how she's going to get a new uh, chin and a new nose and cheekbones and how plastic surgery does go along with this kind of lifestyle of constantly trying to sculpt your sculpt your body to be perfect um she's the real heart of this film to kind of you know pull back the curtain on the fallacy in thinking you can ever be perfect or thinking that um that anything other than you know having a really hard body is is fleeting for a few years for a decade maybe like loving yourself on the inside and understanding your worth and and choosing your own path is more important yeah, well said. And, and she never makes any apologies for that. She never makes any no. apologies for how sexually aggressive she is, because that is, I mean, it's funny how it's a film where it's the women that are all very sexually aggressive and the men, mm. not so much. Like, if anything, uh, if anything, it's John Travolta being like, I don't know, Jamie Lee Curtis, like, maybe we should focus on the work. <laughs> and Jamie Lee Curtis being like, fuck that. <laughs> Rip off this spin. I find you attractive. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, you got circa 1985 John Travolta who doesn't want to rip off the spandex. I'm just saying he's a very attractive man at this point in his mm -hmm. career. Everybody in here is very attractive, which makes it pleasant to watch. Yeah. He was, I think during this era, he was working, he was working out with Stallone a lot, who was really helping him. He was. Going back to like sculpting bodies. Uh, I think that, <laughs> so what I, what I, what I understood is that during this time, just based on John Travolta's like natural body, he was always the threat of just like becoming a naturally chubby man. So Stallone really worked with him to give him this like god body that like would have you know obviously has served very well in his early career uh so during this time he was kind of uh helping him go from just kind of this like skinny guy on the thread of becoming just like a naturally schlubby guy into this like perfectly sculpted man so it's uh it's kind of funny to see this era because it's not long after um staying alive which uh, oh. Stallone directed and that he, I think and that I wonder is how a, many people forget yeah about that, that is the yeah. peak I think 
<laughs> I, how many people forget that Stallone directed that? Because like even Stallone, I think, for, wants people to forget that he directed Staying I mean, Alive. Sometimes I watch I the movie and I think Bob does. Fosse directed it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Stallone has come around, right? He said some pretty. I, I, I love Staying so. Alive. I think, I think Staying Alive is really fun. I think it's his greatest achievement in terms of a director. Wow! Like he directs he directs the shit out of those scenes, like that that musical yeah. number at the end. I can't like who who could have. Like, I don't know. Do you think Alan Pacula could have like uh, could have done that? I don't think so. <laughs> well, I want to bring us into Jamie Lee Curtis for a second. We focused a whole bunch on Stallone. She's someone who I do not. I think it's because of when she came of age and the way movies were changing and the roles for young actors. Like she kind of missed the threshold of being a brat packer. She was a little too old to be a brat packer when that's that became like the new wave of stars. But like we weren't making serious movies about women in their late 20s, early 30s. So like I feel like even though she's had an incredible career since she really missed being like the mega star she could have been. Do you know what I mean? I think maybe that was missed, but I also think it's partially her decision. Like she chose to focus on a family. She's one of the most balanced, I think, public figures in Hollywood. And as we're recording this, it's very recent to the, she did a post actually yesterday where she showed her real body on set, her belly, like she's meant to be an older woman. So watching Perfect and seeing that transition from 1985 to 2022, where she's a woman in her 60s and wants young women to see what she actually looks like to understand that filters and Photoshop and all of this and all of the workouts and the eating disorders and, and the drugs yep. and the, this is what someone who was peak physically fit in the 80s looks like when they naturally age into their 60s. She was very... Who is also genetically gifted. (laughs) Yeah, so genetically gifted. I mean, she was very famous maybe 10 or 15 years ago for posing. I want to say it it wasn't Cosmo. It might have been Women's Health. I can't remember which magazine it was, but without any filters, without lighting, she just posed in her underwear to show natural aging because she said she wanted her daughter, who was having body issues at the time, who was maybe like 14 and 15, to see the reality, to to pull the the curtain back, reveal the little man who think you think is the wizard that this is all fake, and she, I think she's been like that since day one. She knew from being Hollywood royalty the fallacy of stardom, and she's just made really good choices. Um, and I, I I yeah I would I just I applaud her. She's so wonderful. So I think her so- oh I wasn't a giant star actually was possibly self-imposed because the roles that we do have as well i mean this is um trading was it trading places that was just the year before this yeah year before year after iconic that role she's in gosh yeah she's amazing in that and then she's got um a fish called wanda coming back coming up later in the decade another iconic role right so like i think you're right alicia those stuff that she did choose within that plays perfectly to the fact that not only is she an incredible dramatic actor she's really fucking funny so you get both of those things that's uh, so good that's a great example of like that that incredible magic trick of making her dowdy and then the striptease (laughs) that follows i mean that is jamie lee curtis to at, at heart is showing that sort of magic and it's all performance. And, you know, even like she's talked about this film a bit where she was working out six hours a day and only eating one meal a day. So she's probably only Nuts. getting under, under a thousand calories to look the way she did for perfect. Now, the way they filmed is they filmed all of her jazzercise aerobic scenes first. And then the finale of the film where she's kind of doing this like charity, similar to Heavenly Bodies, like workout thing. That's filmed much later, and she'd lost 15 pounds of muscle. Jesus. Just And you do see it. Like, I was looking at the yeah. film really closely. I'm like, yeah, her body is completely different. 
at the end of the film because what it would take to physically maintain that kind of fitness is well we know we see it with marvel and like the trainers and things like that like it's it's impossible for the average person and impossible without someone basically holding your hand who is trained and getting paid six figures to do this all for you. Did you guys ever see the share workout uh, ads in the in the eighties? Hmm. I can't. So they recall. used share. Yeah. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'll send them to you guys. So you can see them after. They yeah. They used share yeah, to. I'm trying to remember the exact name of the brand. Um, but just Google share uh, workout advertisements. Um, they used share to uh, advertise this like chain of fitness studios, and it's her like in like full share like Bob Mackie regalia talking about what it takes to look like share yeah. and have her body, and that you need to work out, and everything's done with like fog machines and like filters, and like it's it's wild looking, but. But the message is you want to look like this, you got to work like this. So it's interesting to see there is a bit of like you better work, bitch, even going on with the messaging at the time. It's also you better have money because you're going to have to take six hours out of your day. You're not going to be able to hold down a nine to five job and you better have money for a nutritionist and a dietitian and a cook and a personal trainer. And this is this is this is a full time career being fit. I say that as someone who is I'm not unfit. But like, I definitely don't look like Jamie Lee Curtis or Cher. Um, but almost nobody looks like Jamie well, Lee Curtis. Yeah, just that's, who has the, time. But that's the other thing. Like that's why Madonna was coming for her, is that like nobody looks like Jamie Lee Curtis, right? Like she's again, she's got all those things going for her. She's an incredible actor. She looks amazing. But one of the things I love about that memeable scene, and that I really don't like that they cut it off halfway through. Because the first half, as you said, it's like all the eye fucking and the intensity and the gaze. But the second half is that he can't keep up with her he's doing his he's doing the same exercises and you see him completely collapse and fall apart on the back end that happens in heavenly bodies too and she's doing a push-up contest with a bunch of football players or yeah i think it's football players brendan do you want to talk about the cutting in this film because we talked about it a little bit last night and it is it's it's a trip yeah, it's a trip. It, it's very jarring. There, there are these like intense edits. So it seems to like force the film to move so quickly while at the same time it kind of settles into this kind of like meandering quality. So like the moments that you think are going to go on for a long time end up getting like cut off abruptly. And then there's moments of just like, you know, John Travolta like cruising around through LA that go on for like a really long time to kind of like set this like this tone and this like of like the time and place which in my opinion are all the better for I know that's something that uh I listened to a bit of the uh, how this get made podcast and they really railed into it for for that that purpose um which uh, I'm not I'm not a fan of that podcast I yeah uh, I don't I don't understand that the whole deal behind it uh just uh, immediately trying to get people on board to dislike a film without even giving it a chance um but yeah, I really think that like those kind of like meandering qualities where you are just seeing what LA looked like at the time. And of course, the fact that it's shot by Gordon Willis, that doesn't hurt it at all. Um, it really just kind of gives it this lived in quality that I really do think that fits the suit. Well, let's well. get into the Rolling Stone aspect of it as well. We haven't touched on that yet. And the fact that Jan Werner is playing a fictionalized version of himself, mm-hmm. but not actually named Jan Werner, um, who, of course, is the editor and founder of Rolling Stone at the time. And one of the big pieces of criticism that a lot of um, the reviews had was they're like, oh, they're talking about Rolling Stone as this bastion of journalism. And I'm like, 
It was. <laughs> it might not be now, but like definitely they were at the forefront of especially a lot of pop culture reporting. And so the the thing even like Nathan Raymond has an issue with is um, why are they putting Rolling Stone on this sort of pedestal? Why are they bootlicking? Why is why are they romancing this guy when they're also making his they're also making Rolling Stone look bad in a way because they're planting this quote unquote fake story. So or like really mean spirited story. Yeah. So I mean, maybe tonally it doesn't totally make sense. I love the fact that there's like an Easter egg of him playing a fictionalized version of himself if you don't know what he looks like. But I don't understand why they would come so hard for Rolling Stone. That's one of the time period things that I don't totally get. Yeah, I don't know if I can really speak to that. I mean, I do think it's fascinating that the Rolling Stone signed off on this and let themselves be to to be like, you know, shown like that. No, but the original really article was well. in Rolling Stone that Aaron Latham wrote that was about the meat markets, which this is based on, right? So I can right. see the progression of that. But yeah, I don't yeah. understand why and why he's not just playing himself, why it's a fictionalized version of himself working at a it real magazine. probably legal reasons, I would imagine. Okay. But also he so, felt so, yeah. that this would be good to show. My understanding of him is he felt this was good to show that Rolling Stone was cutting edge, editorialized, journalistic. It wasn't just reviews of albums. So I get that angle, but I think you're right, Becky. I know Brendan feels this too. It does make Rolling Stone look really vicious. I love the scene of Carly Simon throwing what, yes. what is either a Bloody Mary or a jar of cocktail sauce into John Travolta's face because he's written, <laughs> yeah, he's written an expose written on her. And it's it's a funny thing that I don't know if viewers in 2020 would understand that Carly Simon was considered very press shy. She very famously um, almost couldn't get through the SNL performance of You're So Vain. That's why Chevy Chase is sitting beside her to try to make, make her comfortable and get through the song. And it's one of the most iconic performances. She didn't give interviews, and but she's considered one of the nicest people in the industry. So that's why it's so funny that he would find something to write about her that she's, you know, that she would be then propelled to throw a Bloody Mary in his face at a very famous restaurant in New York. Hi, Carly. Hi, Carly. Hi, Carly. I read that shit you wrote about me. Oh, come on, Carly. You know, the only thing worse than being written about is not being written about. You guys mentioned something about Catherine Bigelow, just as we sort of wind up here. She's in the film. Uncredited. What? She's thanked, but... Um, she has a special thanks, I didn't but see yeah, her. So the party like, with Lauren Hutton, where they're making ice cream with nitrogen, that this you yes. know, editor of Rolling Stone... It, Catherine Bigelow's just in the kitchen drinking. And it's so <sighs> iconically Catherine Bigelow, this stunningly beautiful statuesque woman who would have been coming off of Near Dark, right? Because that's 84. Um, she must have just been friends with James Bridges. Mm. I mean, I think James Bridges had a lot of female friends. Yeah, like I wouldn't call it a cameo because... Yeah, like, like it's not like she was, before? you know, she was it's this before Point Break. <laughs> like she was famous, but not the Catherine Bigelow Academy Award winning best director, Catherine Bigelow we know today. I think James Bridges just had such a community of women, smart women who were fed up with Hollywood, just in his circle that did anything for him and helped him out. And so if you look, and that's true of Lauren Hutton too, like why is she in this film playing Lauren Hutton for 35 seconds? But yeah, Catherine Bigelow, if you just pause on that party scene, you'll see this woman um, very tall with long, long brown hair. And that's Catherine Bigelow. I guess she'd be in her early 30s. Yeah. I think uh, James Bridges was like the... (laughs) He was kind of like the uh, the Charles Manson of uh, 
strong women oh who are fed up with oh. Hollywood. I mean that in the nice way possible, without all what the vicious stuff. What about the, the <clears throat> Hugh Hefner, like he would... <laughs> perhaps? <laughs> a little maybe yeah. Hugh Hefner of, like, of, you know, but in a less... There, sure, yeah, there that's probably a no nicer There is no heremic comparison. thing that we can say that's going to work as a, as a metaphor here. No, there really isn't. Um, I do want to talk about just one of my favorite scenes from the film that I really picked up on last time that I think really just kind of summarizes what James Bridges brings to a project. Uh, there's a scene kind of later in the film after this, the fake article got gets printed uh, that John Travolta has nothing to, had nothing to do with. Um, and then I believe it's Lorraine Newman who first found it in the, she found the article at a newsstand and then she walked into the club with Mary Lou Henner in tow and scene played completely without any dialogue she walks in on curtis who's doing her robot robot routine i think she's by herself she's just training and they walk over hand her the article of rolling stone for her to read and they all read it and there's not there's no dialogue at all there's just music playing over it and they just let these mm-hmm. three women's reactions kind of do the work and it's a very like kind of harrowing scene like you see how much it's affected and how disappointed and how hurt they are by it but again not a single line of dialogue just letting those reactions and those performances do the work i think that right there that's the that's the bridges touch and i think everyone who kind of writes this off is just like a silly film featuring montages of you know people <laughs> wagging their asses around I their think loss really if they this. think that that is all this film is it's their loss but um, i agree but even jamie lee curtis talks about how uh, not upset, but like disappointed she was at how eroticized the aerobics were. But she also, because her media savvy is so strong, she's like, I understand they needed that to be able to sell the film. She's like, I wish it wasn't there, but I get it. Whereas John Travolta yeah. is like, I actually prefer it than has ha- seeing us have a sex scene um, because that kind of is the stand-in for it. Like when they actually do have sex, the door closes, you don't see anything. The stand-in is the aerobics, right? Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, like, you you have that, but then you also have, like, a romance that actually works because they take time to have to give these two people chemistry. And what's really notable is that they actually work for it. You know, it's not just this, like, all right, they're against each other, and then they're suddenly in love. Like, you actually do feel there's this trajectory of them actually, like, fighting for something. And when they actually do fall in love, you buy it because... That's there you know, in Heavenly Bodies, too, because it. the relationship conflict there where he, you know, is traveling all the time because he's a football player and wants to open a restaurant in Chicago, but she's a single mom. Like, it it all made sense. And so the payoff with the happy ending is such a nice payoff. And I think that's true of perfect, like you're saying, Brendan. And I think you guys are uh, are onto something too. It's talking about how this really is at the they missed the peak for this one like often we're seeing the the movie version of whatever like be it disco or whatever trend is usually the peak of these things and it falls off because it's been happening for a while for them to be able to movie, movie at it I think this missed the peak both mm-hmm. of these movies which is why they partially why they deride perfect as much as they did because we were already like 81 80 81 is the Jane Fonda workout videos so we're already out of that peak and it's already almost a punchline by 85 so I think that's part of the issue as well yeah i mean if miss piggy's recording her jane fonda album in 1982 then that's a pretty good sign that by 85 it had been fully satirized and beaten into the ground but if you look at perfect just as aerobics just have to happen to be in the background and this is actually about a whole other like media landscape and interpersonal relationship like you were saying becky the idea of consent in interviews uh it's a much more interesting film Agreed. Agreed. One more last thing I just wanted to say is I just wanted to really give a shout out to the Brilliant, of course. Wolf one of the best. Where it shows all the characters with their names. 
can we please have more of that? Like, I know we, we do get it in Licorice Pizza, which is great, but I feel like we've really lost our way by not having that end credits roll call. I think it's such a delight and it works so well in this. It's a, it really Agreed. just like bumps this film up. And it's I love it. I'm, and the other thing I miss too is the like um, Animal housey and what happened to people in the future. Mm-hmm. They yeah. have it in uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous, which just adds these beautiful extra little dark punchlines mm-hmm. on the back end of what happened to all these human beings. I want more of that. I'm best. sorry that we lost it. But my thing too is like, do we not have that now because of streaming and it generally tends to minimize the credits yeah i mean that's but a good immediately point goes on to like you know the next the next episode on uh, i think on that's why Ugh, so. streaming all right <laughs> on that notice i yell into the heavens uh we're gonna wrap up this episode so alicia fletcher thank you once again for joining us for this one thank you i am horrified that there's going to be a gorilla at my like front door in the next few weeks where I'm going to wake up in bed and there's a gorilla suit or look at our credit card uh, statement and see $6,000 spent on a gorilla suit. I was trying to not so subtly imply uh-huh. that you should get me a gorilla. Oh, I see. Uh, that I was see a you gifting took it in a hint. I understand. Fine. Fine. I understand. Uh, it, was, it was that <laughs> yes. subtle, Brendan. Well done. And Brendan Ross, thank you for joining us and dropping hints. Thank you so much for having me. It's a it's a treat to get to talk about these films that I love, and uh, I hope uh, I hope we've inspired other people to check out these two movies. I really hope so, and with an open mind. Like as you said, like how did this get made? Did perfect yeah. people really deride it? And I'm like, I, you got to come to this one with an open mind. Like you said, there's so many gems about this that make this a good movie as opposed to a laughable movie. And it can be both. Like, what? Why can't movies be both? Why can't you find laugh at them but also, you know, find something well, to genuinely exactly. enjoy in them? Luckily, we're not jaded stand-up comics and writers for television. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think like purely <laughs> abysmal, unwatchable movies are very rare. Like I think most movies have at least some level of watchability or something that someone can have some sort of emotionality to it, which is why we love movies. The only film I would ever, the only film I would ever say is unwatchable for me, and this is going to get people to come at me, is Alain Rene's Last Year at Mary and Bad. I have tried (laughs) nine times, nine (laughs) times to watch that film. I I based a birthday party around it for going to a screening. I cannot, I cannot cannot all right and with that though as we want to encourage more people to see more movies brandon how do people find out more about neon dreams uh i'm on instagram at neon dreams uh we do a monthly series the review cinema in toronto um i don't know when this comes out but uh, come check us out i'll be at the review usually every third friday sounds right yeah I i say last friday of the month that's our general slot right yeah, Who sometimes second lots, depending on how the depending <laughs> on what the state oh, of the world with content. world wars and pandemics. <laughs> yeah, assuming we don't go into another lockdown, uh, I'll be the review. <laughs> Fantastic. Come see me. And on that positive note, you can join us in two weeks, where we're going to be looking at two zombie movies, both with very different sensibilities. We're looking at Day of the Dead and Return of the Living Dead, and we're going to be joined by the fantastic Thea Munster. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. 
and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Alicia Fletcher and Brendan Ross as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.